Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. Good morning. Y'all awake? Listen, if that second song did not wake you up, I'm definitely not going to be able to do it this morning. Worship team, thank you guys for leading us in worship. Hey, okay, let's clap. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, mamas. More on that in just a moment. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 16. We are slowly walking through the book of Acts, taking our time, uh, looking at how the Spirit of God empowers the people of God to live on mission for the glory of God. God's plan all along was to use us, those of us who would confess and repent and believe in the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus and the spirit of God would come and equip us for the sake of mission. Acts chapter one, verse eight. Here's the anchor for the entire book of Acts. You ready? Jesus talking to his disciples, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and lives in you and expresses himself through you, you will be empowered to be my what? My witnesses in Jerusalem where you currently live and where you currently reside into Judea and Samaria and unto the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 16 is one of my favorite chapters in the book of Acts for a number of reasons. It's special for this reason. One, it's, it's the first time that the church gets birthed in the city of Philippi. Uh, but what's even more special is that this is the very first time that the gospel, that the good news ever landed on European soil. Like this is literally the very first time that the church was birthed in the Western world. We all have a line directly tied to Philippi and the city in Macedonia. But what's even more special is, do you know who the very first convert, the very first Christian was in the Western world in Philippi? It was a powerhouse of a lady named Lydia. We're going to hear more about Lydia in a few minutes. But we often forget how, how instrumental a role women in the early church played in the establishment and a thriving of the early church. And we often forget the way that God used women in the earthly ministry of Jesus. A couple come to mind. I was thinking uh, the other day of John chapter 4 when Jesus shows up thirsty at a well in Samaria. And we don't even get to know her name. She's just the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And yet Jesus chose to divulge his true identity to her first. And she was the first public evangelist to go and to tell the world that the Messiah had arrived. Luke chapter 8, we see a list of women, Mary Magdalene and Susanna. She was the steward of, of Herod's kingdom. Uh, she was the wife of the steward of Herod. There's Joanna. There's other women. And this is what that passage says in Luke 8, that these other women, they provided for Jesus and the disciples out of their resources. If you've ever wondered how Jesus and his group of disciples could go for three years, obviously, with no uh, obvious income, uh, that's it right here. These women were their meal ticket. They served Jesus with their lives, and they stewarded their resources for the sake of Jesus's ministry. Don't forget about the resurrection. Jesus chose to allow women to be the very first to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ had indeed risen from the dead. 
And then there's the book of Acts, chapter 16. This morning we meet Lydia. Next, chapter 17, we meet Damaris, who was a lady standing toe-to-toe with some of the intellectually elite at the Areopagus in Mars Hill at Athens, where they like to discuss uh, weighty, heady things all the time. Chapter 18, we get to meet Priscilla and Aquila, this dynamic couple, this husband and wife team who were used by God to do amazing things in the early church. Priscilla and Aquila are best known for taking Apollos aside. Apollos was a preacher of the gospel. And we see him showing up in Acts chapter 18. And man, Apollos was just a great communicator. He just didn't have his theology figured out yet. So Priscilla and Aquila came, upon, come, came alongside of him and said, hey, man, come over for dinner. We want to put food in your belly. And we want to tell you where you're missing the rest of the gospel. And so they helped shape Apollos's ministry and his understanding of the word. They were so viable to the ministry of Paul that when Paul left Corinth, he'd been there for a year and a half and first met Priscilla and Aquila. Man, when, when they went to Ephesus, he said, hey, Priscilla and Aquila, will you guys move with me and move your base of operations to Ephesus? And so many women God used for the sake of the gospel. And for those of you ladies that don't know, we've uh, we had some of our Grace Women leadership put together a summer full of scripture reading guide for you. Don't know if you've downloaded it yet. It's a digital guide. You can find it on our Grace Women Instagram site or Facebook if you need to take a picture of that. But it was curated just for you ladies to kind of walk through the scriptures this summer, to be intentional with the word of God. And you're going to meet a bunch of these ladies, Old Testament and new, as we call you deeper into the word of God. Here's the deal, folks. Uh, We could go on and on talking about the myriad of women that God used to build and sustain the early church. And I am convinced that if it wasn't for these tenacious and gifted and willing and able women of the early church, there's no telling where we would be today. And the same is true for all you mamas. That wasn't planned at all. Happy Mother's Day. Here's the deal. Mamas come in all different shapes and sizes, colors and characteristics, quirks and endearing qualities. We can all trace our being here today to a mama. So if you haven't picked up a phone yet, make sure you do so after my message, of course. And we know that the wide spectrum of mothering is far more nuanced than we often acknowledge. Listen, we know that not every woman rejoices on Mother's Day. Some of you will celebrate great memories and have great times. Others are going to be filled with grief and unanswered prayer. Some of you ladies have more questions than answers, and we want you to know you're not alone. And so whether you are rejoicing on this Mother's Day, dear lady, or you are mourning today, know, dear sisters, that motherhood is not the pinnacle of the Christian life. Knowing Christ and making him known is the pinnacle And in the words of Glenna Marshall, someone I follow online, she says, you are equipped to do that no matter how full or empty your arms may be, mama, lady, sister in Christ. And so for you moms here today, we celebrate you, we pray for you, we appreciate you, and we're going to do the best we can to remind you and celebrate you the other 364 days of the year as well. Okay, uh, one more reason that Acts 16 is special. Not just because it was the first time the gospel landed in the West. Not just because the first convert to Christianity was Lydia. But Acts 16 highlights the diversity of the gospel on display. We're going to meet three very different people in Acts chapter 16 this morning. Three radical encounters with the good news gospel of Jesus. Three people who would probably have never been found in the same place 
ever. And yet that's the beauty of the gospel. It breaks down walls and brings together uncommon people to share an uncommon life in common. Acts chapter 16, we'll pick up in verse 11. As you're turning there, let me, let me remind you what's going on, set the scene a little bit. Uh, Paul and his team are back out on the missions field. They already went out on the first missionary trip back in Acts 13 and 14. And if you remember the last two weeks that Dustin's been preaching, we've been at the great church debate, Acts chapter 15. What does it mean for Gentile Christians to be saved? What does it mean for Gentiles to come into faith in Christ? Do they have to become Jews? Do they have to live according to the law? At the least, do they have to be circumcised? And all the Gentile men in the room said, no, amen. And so the Jerusalem council determined a handful of things that the churches needed to communicate to the Gentiles. And so here's Paul going back on the mission field to check on the churches they'd previously planted, but also to deliver all of these letters to everyone so that they know what it meant. But it's really interesting. Acts 16 verses 6 through 10. I won't get into it, but man, Paul wanted to go to the north and the Holy Spirit said no. And Paul wanted to go south into Asia Minor and the Holy Spirit said no. And Paul wanted to go a bunch of different places and God kept saying no. And so they just kept going the way that they were. And they ended up on the coast of the Aegean Sea in the city of Troas. And they didn't know what was next. And of course, God spoke and said, hey, get in a boat. I want you to go over to Macedonia. And so we'll pick up the story. Verse 11, Acts 16, verse 11. And see the very first time the gospel landed in the Western world. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and what were they doing in that city? Well, they were doing what Paul and his team did every time they landed in a previously unreached city. They went looking for the synagogue so that they could preach first to the Jew. Now, why? Well, because the Jews already had the law. They already had the word of God. They had a common language with Paul. And so it was a, an obvious first step. The only problem was Philippi was so Gentile, they didn't even have a synagogue yet in place. Now, Paul being the mastermind that he was, he understood that there was a customary place that was always set up in any city outside of the city gates near the central water source where Jews would go to gather and congregate and have church. And so Paul makes a beeline for that place. Verse 13, this is how the ministry starts in the Western world. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. Say Lydia. She was from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, some scholars suggest that these women that were at the waterside, that they were God-fearing Jews or, or God-fearing Gentiles or proselytes, women who, who had forsaken their old pagan ways and were beginning to try to live according to the law of Moses. They cared about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were doing the best that they could to honor him and to worship him and to hear from him. And so this is exactly where Paul goes. And they sit down and they begin having a conversation with these ladies. And can I tell you, it wouldn't have looked like much at the time. Probably nothing more than a, a picnic. 
Nothing about those folks and their appearance would have clued us in to the fact that this was actually one of the pivotal moments in the history of the plan of God in unfolding redemption for the world. Again, this was the beginning of the church in the West. One of us, one, one who heard us, verse 14, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, worshiper of God. Luke kind of gives us this character sketch. So let's kind of let's build a profile of who this woman was. We're told that she's from the city of Thyatira. That means she's a foreigner. Uh, she didn't grow up in that area. She was from a city over in Asia Minor. Thyatira is one of the seven churches of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3. It's about 250 miles away from Philippi. What else does it tell us? It tells us that she was a seller of purple goods. What do you think that meant for her economically? What do you think? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She was plied. She had money. Now, archaeologically, we know that there was a dyer's guild in the city of Thyatira. There were people who dyed precious goods in this unique color purple that could only be found in that region. And so either she was a part of that dyer's guild or she was a marketer who sold goods from that dyer's guild. She had money. She probably had a mountain house in the Golan Heights, good for skiing, maybe a lake house down in Galilee for the summertime. She was a worshiper of God, so you know that she owned a franchise of Chick-fil-A, right? Because, like, surely she ate the Lord's chicken. She's a worshiper of God. But being a worshiper of God tells us that she was spiritually sensitive. She was in the place where she needed to be to grow in her faith. And we're told in verse 13 that as the guys sit down to begin to talk to them, that she was listening and present. Verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The New American Standard Version reads that she was listening intently to what Paul was saying. This tells us that Lydia was, she was sensitive, she was teachable that she was inquisitive, that she was in the best possible place she could be to grow in her faith. Kind of like many of you, you're here on a Sunday morning, you're sitting under the ministry of the word of God. Yeah, I know some of y'all are drug here, uh, but for the most part, you want to be here. You want to hear from God. And so did she. Let's talk about her social prospects. Did she have any friends? What do you think? Well, obviously she had some acquaintances. She's, she's got some girlfriends who come to Bible study with her. In verse 15, it says that after she gets saved, her whole household gets baptized. Now, don't hear household as immediate family, uh, sons and daughters and spouse. Like the household in the Greco-Roman world was everybody you were connected to. We're talking about the gardener. We're talking about the market person. We're talking about your social and business contacts. Like everybody you were in connection and networking with was a part of your household. I mean, she gathered everybody up and she's like, hey, I need you to hear from these preachers. They've got the good news of the gospel. And so there's the character sketch. How does the gospel reach her? Well, verse 13, the gospel reaches her through a normal conversation. The guys sat down. They spoke with the ladies. In verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. She came to God through a rational discourse, a dialogue, a normal conversation. She had a talk with the guys. Now, none of us were there. Total speculation. But, but, but I imagine that Paul would have sat down with her and would have probably begun with Abraham and began to tell her about the story of Abraham and 
then to Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Moses and the law, and then David and his kingdom, and then all the way finally coming to rest on Jesus. I can imagine Paul saying, Lydia, every prophet and every priest and every king and every judge and every lamb that was ever sacrificed, it pointed forward to Jesus, the one size fits all sacrifice for sin. And the Lord opened her heart to listen intently and to respond to the good news of the gospel. And in that moment, all of Lydia's knowledge, all of her religious devotion, all of the things that she had prided herself on in her pursuit of the God of Israel culminated in the beauty of the gospel. She saw finally with her heart wide open, Jesus, and all of the beauty that he was. And it's quite possibly how some of us came to faith in our own lives. It made sense. It was logical. We had a conversation. It was communicated clearly. We did the thinking and God gave the faith that allowed us to see that Jesus was who he says he is and did what he says he did. All the evidence lines up. The veracity of the scriptures and the archaeological history and we confessed Jesus. But not only had Lydia's heart been opened up to the gospel, look at verse 15, so had her hands. Verse 15, after she was baptized, her and her household as well. She urged us saying, come, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay with me. And she prevailed upon us. That means she probably said, you're not leaving, okay? You need to come into my house. Let me cook for you. I got some rooms. I want to take care of you. Basically, Lydia's saying, hey, it's not just my heart, Lord. Here's my hands. Here's my resources, here's my money, my pocketbook, my house, my networks, my family. God, here's all of my life. Use it for your kingdom's sake. And what did Paul do? Paul began to build the church around those who responded to the good news of the gospel. This was the beginning of the church in the Western world. And I don't want you to miss this, folks, especially you men in here. Some of us need our views of the opposite sex redeemed by the Lord. This was God using an obedient response of a woman to birth the church in the West. And honestly, some of us guys don't know how to look at the opposite sex with other than lust or expectation. And we need to see the incredible worth and value that God placed on our sister image bearers as they were used by God for the sake of the gospel. God used Lydia and planted the church in Philippi. Now, hold on to Lydia. Let's look at this second radical encounter. A girl at the absolute opposite end of the spectrum. Verse 16, let's meet this slave girl. Acts 16, 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Okay, um, I like to read children's literature a lot. Do I have any uh, Percy Jackson fans out there? Okay, we got some grown-ups. Thank you, guys. We can start a book club. I love this. Okay, so check this out. The spirit of divination literally was the spirit of Python in the Greek. And the spirit of Python was connected to the Delphic Oracle, okay? Y'all are tracking with me, right? You know, like the mummy upstairs who had the prophecies. Okay, I know I lost the rest of y'all. But here's the point. Read creepy and read demonic. That's what's happening here. This young girl was indwelt by some kind of spiritual forces of darkness, and she would make these clairvoyant predictions and tell the future and often do it in utterances in strange foreign tongues, weird, creepy stuff. 
what happens? She's following after Paul, verse 17. She's crying out, these men are servants of the most high God. This isn't the first time that the demons proclaim whose God people are. They're following after Paul, proclaiming to you the way of salvation. These are servants of God. And she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, verse 18, having become greatly what? I love this. Greatly annoyed, Paul turns and says to the spirit, come out. I command you in the name of Jesus to be gone. And at that very hour, it came out of her. And so here we're introduced to this second individual, this radical encounter with the gospel. What do you think, what do you think this uh, arrangement did for her social prospects? You know, being indwelt by a demon that told the future. And, you know, being exploited by the only other human interaction she had. Think she had a lot of friends? Probably not. Probably not. Let's talk about her economic worth. Uh, how much money do you think she had? I, I don't know. Probably none. She herself was a possession. And don't miss the partnership here. See, she wasn't just psychologically and spiritually bound by demonic forces, but the only other human interaction she had, she was exploited by. Don't miss the partnership between humanity and the forces of darkness, enslaving God's good, good creation. This still happens today. Look around. It's all over the world, the way enemy and humanity works together to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and use God's creation for harm. We're not told this girl's ethnicity. We're not told her place of origin, but we believe that she's a Greek. Okay, Macedonia was a huge area. This was one of the three major cities. Her economic worth, we don't think she has anything. And what happens when Paul gets annoyed? But don't hear that like you think you know what that means. That word annoyed literally means to be distressed and pained deep inside. It's the same word that's used when Paul, standing outside of Athens, looks and says he was provoked in his spirit as he looks at all of the idols in Athens. Paul was distressed by what he saw happening around this girl and what was going on inside of this girl. And so what happens next? How is she liberated? Paul says the word and he casts out this demon. And here's the deal, folks. She did not experience the gospel like Lydia did, right? I mean, I don't think this slave girl was looking for a rational conversation about how Jesus fulfilled the law, right? She wasn't looking to sit down and have a Bible study and have discussion. No, no, no. This slave girl needed an encounter with the liberating power of God. Now, nothing tells us in the scripture that she became a Christian. Nothing tells us that she converted and got saved. Uh, Honestly, the scriptures don't mention her ever again. But here's what we do know is that she was liberated by the power of God through Paul. And she was liberated across the board. She was liberated from the spiritual forces of darkness. She was liberated from the exploitation of her human masters. And it's my hope and my prayer that one day when the new heavens and new earth come down, that I'm going to be able to find her And learn her name. Because here's the deal. Later in the story, Paul and Silas, they get dragged away and thrown into prison because of what they did there. Timothy and Luke, they don't get dragged away. You know why? Well, it's believed because Timothy and Luke looked like Greeks. Paul and Silas looked like Jews. I'm hoping Timothy and Luke took her aside and said, hey, let me tell you who just liberated you and brought you freedom. And so we've got these two radical encounters, right? Two ladies 
at the opposite ends of the spectrum here. One, a respectable businesswoman, and the other, scarcely a member of human community, at, or for the human community at all. Lydia was a moral and religious good person. She loved and knew her Bible, but the slave girl, she was alienated from any kind of community, from any sense of morality as far as we can tell. Her knowledge of truth was, was that that surrounded those of her oppressors. Lydia had much to be proud of. Pillar in the community. The slave girl was completely marginalized without a shred of dignity. Lydia had a moderate amount of power. The slave girl had no power whatsoever, no dignity whatsoever. She didn't even have a shred of self-control to totally different women. Now, how did the gospel bring liberation to them? Lydia, through discourse, through a dialogue. The slave girl, through deliverance. Lydia came quietly in a Bible study. Slave girl came loudly through deliverance. To Lydia, Jesus was presented as the Messiah of Israel. And to the slave girl, he was presented as the bondage breaker, as the liberator. Now, what do these radically different encounters tell us about Jesus? He is what each of us needs. He knows where we're at. He knows what's going on in our lives. He was beautiful enough for Lydia and powerful enough for the slave girl. And these encounters also tell us that the gospel is as much for the nice and moral as it is for the broken and enslaved and addicted. Jesus is just what each of us needs. He's what you need whether you think you need him or not. There's one more radical encounter we see in the story. And all of the men in the room said, amen, because finally a dude gets saved in Philippi. Let's meet this jailer, this Philippian jailer, who in many ways, like the jailer's in the middle. He's in the middle between Lydia and he's in the middle between this slave girl. As far as we can tell from the text, and we don't see a lot about this jailer, but he wasn't this moral Bible-honoring person, but neither was he this person completely out of control or possessed by a demon. Neither was he confronted and pursued by the evangelists in a forceful way, but unlike Lydia, man, he didn't come calmly in the middle of a Bible study. Later on in the story, we're going to see that the jailer runs into the prison and he looks at Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? He probably had no idea what he was talking about. But he saw something different in these Christian men, and he wanted what they had. Now let's back up for a second. What happened in the story here? After Paul casts out the demon, those masters who were profiting off of the exploitation of the slave girl, man, their mail ticket was gone. They got upset. They stirred the crowd into a frenzy. They grab Paul and Silas. They drag them into the magistrate's courts there in Philippi because Philippi was a Roman cohort. It was a Roman city. It was run by the Roman constructs of government. And they went ahead and they stripped these guys of their clothes and they beat them with rods. Then they handed him off to the jailer and said, put him in the dungeon in the inner stocks. We know what those stocks look like. They were these weird, rough contraptions that bent your legs at an awkward angle. It was not very comfortable. Let's read the story together. Verse 23, and let's meet the jailer. This third radical encounter. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them, Paul and Silas, into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and he fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, about midnight, say midnight. Midnight. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying 
and singing hymns to God. Verse 25, halfway through, this is good. And the prisoners were listening to them. Don't miss that. And suddenly, verse 26, there was a great earthquake. This isn't the first time that God has scheduled a prison break for his people, right? There's a great earthquake, so much so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw that the doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself. Why? Because he knew that he would pay for his life for the sake of these prisoners. If they were gone, it was going to fall on him and he was going to fall on his sword. But what happened? Verse 28, Paul cries out with a loud voice, don't hurt yourself, we're still here. And the jailer called for the lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear, he falls down before Paul and Silas. And then he brings them out and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then they preached the gospel. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. You want evidence of the gospel changing this man's life? At first he was securing their wounds. Now he is ministering to their wounds. That's what the gospel does. It takes enemies and it turns them into friends, into family. And the rest of the story is great. We don't have time for it. But see, Paul and Silas, they were both Roman citizens. They withheld that information. It was illegal to uh, disrupt the, the uh, it was Ill, illegal to kind of uh, inflict that kind of punishment on a Roman citizen. And no matter what had been done, there was a law in place. And if they did that, I mean, they were liable to be punishment from those in authority back in Rome. And so Paul says, hey, you know, we're Romans, right? Oh, and the magistrates in Philippi started shaking in their boots, and they're like, we're sorry, we screwed up. Will you please get out of our city and get out of here? But I want to come back to this jailer, this third radical encounter, because the jailer saw the gospel on display, and it changed everything for him. But first, can we, can we talk about these brothers in prison at the midnight hour? Their backs bloodied. Their legs and feet fastened to the stocks. And about the midnight hour, they're praying and they're singing hymns to God. I know it's true for this service. It's been for the last two. How many of y'all have been up at the midnight hour and you just can't turn your brain off? And you're thinking of all the things, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Especially if you're in a season of suffering and tragedy and enduring hardship. The midnight hour is one of the longest hours. But here they are. You know, I think we cheat these faithful servants to suggest that God somehow numbed their pain. I think the challenge for them was enduring long enough until their pain became bearable. But instead of complaining and grumbling, instead of sinking into the reality of their situation, what are they doing? They are praising God and singing hymns and praying to their father. Midnight songs is what I call these. Midnight songs, they echoed throughout the prison corridor. And I believe it's the second half of verse 25 that is most significant. Look at verse 25 again. Who is listening? Who is listening to these songs? The other prisoners. Listen, this will preach. Sometimes the songs that we're singing to God, the prayers we're offering to him in our darkest hour, it's not just about us. Sometimes Those offerings of praise 
are the very roads that God wants to travel to bring his good news gospel to the people around us that don't have words to sing themselves. Prisoners who've been fastened to the stocks for so long that they don't even know the words to lift up a voice to God. As people of faith in Christ, listen, we stand before a watching world. A watching world that does not know how to endure suffering and tragedy and brokenness and discord and disunity and all of the things, let's be honest, we've faced in our country this last year. But Christianity fortifies us in the face of the greatest brokenness and hardest tragedy. And this jailer got to see something that absolutely changed the script for his life. See, what's really interesting about this part of the story is when the, when the earthquake came and the prison doors opened and the stocks fell off, man, these prisoners, they were free to go, but they didn't. They were also free to stay. Why did they stay? See, Paul and Silas understood that if they left, they would gain their freedom at the expense of the life of the jailer. And see, at the center of Paul and Silas's life was a new story, a new narrative that they had learned that they had already received their freedom through the work of Christ at the expense of another, Jesus Christ. And because of that, they were free to stay put because they knew that God was still at work. And so disorienting and attractive were people who were praising God in the midst of suffering that all these other prisoners were glued to the spot, watching and wondering, what's going to happen next? Can you imagine how attractive a narrative it is to a world that does not know how to handle suffering and brokenness to see the people of God speak a new language? A new narrative? One of hope and joy in the midst of brokenness, they stay put. They're free to go, but they're free to stay. And what does the jailer do? Man, he pulls his sword. He knows it's going to cost him his life. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't hurt yourself. We're still here. Put your sword away. We are still here. And this jailer, he got to see on display something that blew his mind. Prisoners forsaking their freedom, willing to pay the price so that he might not have to pay with his life. Now this jailer, man, he needed to see how the gospel reversed the values of the world. He was radically helped by Christians in his greatest moment of need. That's the story we need to be telling as the people of God. Not self-preservation and self-acquisition, but broken bread in a poured out cup laying our lives down for other people because we have a Savior who laid his life down for us. A people who grieve, but grieve with hope because our hope is the confident assurance that our God is seated on the throne and he wins. The jailer saw firsthand again the way Christianity fortifies you for the worst that life presents he saw a joy maybe. Maybe he heard them singing and he saw a joy displayed that was rooted so much deeper than their circumstances. And folks, I get to see this every week when I go out to the prison and minister to the inmates at APCI. 
You want to talk about a joy that is greater than circumstances? I see men on a weekly basis whose joy is so rooted in God because they've already hit bottom and they have nothing left but Jesus. And sure, some of those guys are all about jailhouse Jesus, but there is the majority of these men who have been so radically gripped by the power of the gospel that stocks and chains and prison bars and cells, they can't keep their hearts captive because they've been freed by the good news gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what does this jailer do? Man, he falls on his face before these guys and he says, I don't know what you got, but I want it. This is really, really compelling. If I was you, I would not have stayed put. I'd have been gone. Tell me, man, what is the story that kept you here to help me in my time of need? What must I do to be saved? Three radical encounters. Two surprising conversions. Lydia and the jailer. I'm holding out for a third. I hope I get to meet the slave girl and get to know her name. And the woman at the well. I want to get to know her name too. Now what's most surprising as I land this plane, and probably very deliberate, is that these three individuals, a woman, a slave, and a Gentile, these were the very opposite of what a Jewish guy like Paul would have ever been. In fact, this is going to blow your mind. Every Jewish head of the house would rise up in the morning and thank God in a very typical and common prayer. Thank God that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. We have evidence of this coming out of exile in the Babylonian Talmud, the writings of the Jewish people when they came out of captivity, that this was a daily prayer. Bigoted, I know. Oh God, thank you, said the Jewish male of his house. Thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And yet here is God bringing these three types of people together into the family of God. That's what Christianity does. That's what the message of the gospel is all about. It's about breaking walls and barriers and showing how uncommon people can live in common because they're joined together by the uncommon life of Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is about. Not about liberalism, not about right-wing politics. It's about a new narrative of Jesus completely reorienting our lives to loving God and loving people, especially those who don't look like us. That's probably why in verse 40, Luke ends this story talking about these brand new Christians and referring to them as brothers and sisters. Verse 40. This is the diversity of the gospel. Three very radical encounters, three very different people being brought close into the family of God. This is what we're going to see one day. Standing around the throne of God of Revelation 7, where every nation and every tribe and every tongue is proclaiming the glory of God and the glory of the Lamb. Jesus is every nation bride. Pastor Dustin often says it, man, if you don't like worshiping when people don't look like you now, you are going to hate heaven. No one's going to hate heaven. The beauty of this story is that we all have somebody in our lives that's somewhere on this spectrum. Lydia, the religious moral person who thought she's good enough but didn't know that Jesus was the only one who makes us good and right. The slave girl. 
tormented by psychological and demonic forces, in need of liberation, addiction, fill in the blank. Or the jailer, maybe he's the agnostic. Hey, man, God's real, but I don't need him. I'm doing fine on my own. I don't need your fairy tale, man. I'm good. Maybe we were on that spectrum. Maybe we still are. Man, I'd encourage you and challenge you, man. Investigate the claims of Jesus. He's not just a figure on a book. Yes, he is the most polarizing figure in human history. He is God. And he reveals to us who God is. Jesus was beautiful enough for Lydia, powerful enough for this slave girl, and practical enough to meet the needs of this jailer when he needed it most. Jesus is what each of us need. He is what you need. Even if you don't think it, I promise you he is what you need. And you don't need me to show you that. You don't need me to get you to Jesus. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Not just from hell, but from a life of meaninglessness and purposelessness. God created you for his glory. And when we live in concert with God's design for us, there is such joy, such significance, such worth, such value. And as we continue walking through the book of Acts, folks, like our call on our lives is to live sent Asking God to give us eyes to see the people the way that he sees them. Lydia's, Philippian jailers, girls with no names, but all now with a new name, son, daughter of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the invitation to see the story of the gospel on display in Philippi. Lord, this is the work that you have been doing and still want to do in and through us, right here in the heartland. Saturating every nook and cranny of this region of the heartland so there is nowhere, nowhere we can go, Father, and not be confronted with people who love God and love people passionately. Jesus, make us these people. God, would you so compel us to live for the sake of people, Show us this better way. Fortify us, Father, to trust you when things are hard and messy because we never know who's watching. We give you praise this day in Jesus' name. Amen.